In Matthew 6, 8, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching on the subject of prayer when he said something that when I first, um, well, maybe not the first time I ever encountered this line, but I can remember very clearly the time when I, I read it and the question popped into my mind. In Matthew 6, 8, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching about prayer. He says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And uh, there are other scriptures like this. For example, in Psalm 139.4, it says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And of course, uh, over these past several Sundays, we've been studying uh, the topic of prayer in the Bible, specifically focusing on those prison prayers of Paul. And uh, for some of you, this might be a bit of unnecessary review Uh, But when it comes to prayer, scriptures like these raise a question in some of our minds. (laughs) If our Father knows what we need before we ask Him, why must we ask it? And if He knows what we need and He knows what we're going to say, why does He command us to say it? Uh, In some ways, these questions go right to the heart of God's purposes in prayer. Uh, I think when I was younger, I, I kind of approached God in prayer in much the same way that I approached my parents with various requests or things that were on my mind. Especially when I was a small child, I looked on my parents as being more powerful than me. They had resources that I didn't have. They had wisdom and knowledge that I didn't have. And so when I had a problem that I couldn't fix or I wanted something, or even if I just wanted to talk to my mom and dad and kind of pour out my heart to them, or if somebody had been mean to me or something like that, who knows? I I would go to them and tell them about it, and I'd make requests to them because they were bigger than me. They were more able than me. They had money. They could fix what was wrong, maybe, or at least make me feel better. And in some ways, that's similar to how we relate to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Just like a child knows that their mom and dad love them, we know God's heart toward us, his children. He even encourages us in his word, the Bible, to call him Abba, Father, when we pray. And just as a child looks to his or her parents as being stronger and more able and richer, we have a sense that God is far more able than us and that he's rich in resources, power, wisdom, knowledge. Uh, Even God draws comparisons between the dynamic of a child asking things of their human parents and believers making requests of their heavenly father. For example, again, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Jesus said, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children— How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So this idea that prayer is like a child pouring out their heart to a parent is not without basis. Uh, We do find that in the Bible. That's part of it. However, we can carry this too far, I think. For all of the similarities, there is a significant difference between making a request to our natural human parents and asking things of our Heavenly Father. 
And that difference is tied to the all-knowing, all-righteous perfection of God. As you all know, I have five children. And when we go on long road trips, I sometimes get frustrated. Because we'll just be zipping along down the highway. And then I'll hear a little voice from the back of the minivan say (laughs) those words that all parents dread hearing from their kids on a road trip. (laughs) I need to go to the bathroom. And of course, it never fails that they ask to use the bathroom on only the most desolate stretches of highway ever conceived of by man. And never mind that we just stopped 10 minutes ago because one of the other kids had to go to the bathroom. And at least with my kids, when they say, I need to go to the bathroom, what they actually mean is, I need to go to the bathroom now. They, <laughs> they never tell me about their need when it's early on and they can wait. It's always at a point of desperate crisis. But even though I know this, I always ask, can you hold it? And almost always, they whimper back and say, I really need to go. And here, the difference between making a request to God and making a request to a human parent becomes clear. I did not know what my child was going to ask before they asked it. I thought everything was good. We were just zipping along. We just stopped 10 minutes ago. I didn't know they needed to pee. Before the words formed on their tongue, I didn't have a clue what was on their mind. My kids need to inform me of things because I don't know what's going on with them all the time. At times, they also need to argue with me and convince me because, and I hate to admit this, but I'm sometimes wrong, or cheap, or lazy, or unsympathetic, or maybe I think they're exaggerating their problem. So when my kids open their mouths and make a request to me, their human dad, it is because I'm ignorant and I need to be be informed. And at other times, it's because I need to be convinced to change course and do what they want me to do. But there's a danger in approaching God with this kind of a mindset. God, of course, never needs to be informed of anything. And his will is perfect. And so when God says in his words, I know what you need before you ask, or I know what you're going to say even before you do, or as it says in Isaiah 46.10, I make known the end from the beginning from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. In Acts 17, it says of God, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And in Isaiah 40, 14, God kind of sarcastically asks, Whom did I consult? Who made me understand? Who taught me the path of justice? Or who taught me knowledge? And who showed me the way of understanding? In all of this, God is making it very plain that we are not to approach him in prayer as somebody who is ignorant or who needs convincing. His arm cannot be twisted. He does not need to be convinced or conjoled or brought along. And so we need to get this uh, firmly implanted in our mind that prayer does not exist to bend God's will to ours. 
That's what most uh, human interactions look like when we make a request of our boss or our parents or our next door neighbor or whatever. The part of it is because we need to make them aware and we want them to uh, see it from our perspective and, and do what we think should be done. But of course, that's not how prayer works. So what then is the purpose of prayer? If prayer does not exist to advise God or convince God, what, what is it designed to do? And again, for some of you, this may be something you are already aware of. But when it comes to something as foundationally important as prayer, mastering the fundamentals is very important. And I think one of the most fundamentally important things that a Christian needs to understand about prayer is that prayer is intended by God to move us into agreement with his will, not to make God move in ways that agree with ours. Prayer does not change God's mind. It doesn't make him do what he otherwise is not inclined to do. God is perfect. We're the ones who are out of position. One of the reasons why I love praying the prayers that I find in the Bible is because when I pray God's words back to him, my own heart becomes wonderfully aligned with his perfect will. Prayer moves me, not God. And so the Bible is clear. If the Bible is clear that God is pleased and glorified to move in response to our prayers, it is the trigger. But it would be wrong to think that prayer has the power to alter God's chosen course. Uh, that's not true to the facts, and that's not what the Bible presents when it comes to prayer. But it is true that God is pleased, he's glorified to move in response to our prayers. And so prayers have this uh, supernatural role in our lives of bringing us into agreement with God, and then God is pleased to work through his church that is speaking his will back to him. Again, prayer is primarily designed to move us and not God. Move us into agreement with him, not him into agreement with us. And so the question on my mind as I dive into the prayer we're going to study this morning is this. How does God want to shape our hearts and minds through the praying of this prayer? First, let's read the prayer, and then we'll unpack it a bit. You can find the prayer in the very first chapter of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Uh, if you're kind of new to your Bibles, uh, Colossians are found right in the middle of some of Paul's prayers in the, the second half of your Bible called the New Testament. Uh, here I have my Bible open, and you'll see it's just a little sliver in the back. Uh, right before it are the books of Galatians and Ephesians, and right after it uh, comes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I'm sorry, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then comes Colossians. I'm sorry, uh, it's, <laughs> I got a little turned around in there. Uh, but here's the, here's the passage, Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The first thing that Paul prays is that his Colossian friends would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Uh, This is the very first scriptural prayer that I ever committed to memory. Years ago, I had a pastor who challenged me to do that, and I took him up on it. And every time I have prayed these words, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual and understanding with joy, I have felt God's pleasure when I prayed that. I just don't know any other way to say it. I can feel God's pleasure when I pray those words over a fellow believer. And I have prayed this prayer thousands of times. No matter how many times I have prayed those words, I have never felt a lessening in that sense of feeling God's pleasure. When when these words are spoken to God in prayer on another's behalf. And I've prayed these words over happy couples, newlyweds, I've prayed them over my enemies, or at least people who thought of themselves as my enemies. (laughs) I've prayed them over people in a crisis, on birthdays, normal days too. I've prayed them before board meetings, before entering hospital rooms, before counseling appointments. I've prayed them on the occasions of birthdays, over my family, on behalf of missionaries. Fellow Christian at State Road, I have flipped through the directory and prayed these words over you, I'm sure. And I've prayed them for myself. Countless times I have drawn before the Lord and I have asked him to fill my fellow believer with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and and discernment. And whenever I do, on good days, bad days, people who are happy with me, people who are not, there it is. I feel God's pleasure when I pray those words. Even when I've prayed this over people who just (laughs) seemed intent on being my enemy, I felt my own heart guarded against responding in kind, simply by asking God to fill me and them with the knowledge of his will. Whatever the circumstances, it it is a right thing to pray over a fellow believer. However, even as we say these words, and we pray that our fellow believer would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, It's important to know and be shaped by the fact that the knowledge of God's will is not for its own sake. God grants the knowledge of his will to a believer so that it will shape the day-to-day of what we do with our lives. In other words, it's not what we know that matters, but what we do with that knowledge. What we know of God's will only matters insofar as it informs how we actually live. No revelation from God has accomplished its purpose when a person has simply understood it, but has not yet lived it. Every word of the Bible is meant to be lived, and it's what we do with the truth that we know that matters. In John 13, 17, Jesus, for example, said, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And in James 4, 17, another passage among many that 
point us to this truth. We read, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Uh, It occurs to me that in the Bible there are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. A sin of commission is doing something bad, like stealing. But a sin of omission would be failing to do something good, like giving. If we are made aware of God's will, but we fail to make these things central to how we live our lives, then we are committing a sin of omission. For example, we all know the Great Commission to go and make disciples. We all know that Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We all know that you've been given gifts and resources to be used for God's glory in service to others. We all know the command to love God with our entire self and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We all know that the fields are ripe for the harvest, but the laborers are few. We all know the command to pray. We all know the command to be intimately involved in a church family. We know the command to help the widow and the orphan in distress. We know the command to put sin to death in our lives. We know the command to love one another as Christ loved us. We know all these commands and others. We know that these are the right things to build our lives around. These are the right things to do. And if we fail to do them, that is sin. If we come to the end of our lives, and it was filled with servicing a mortgage, pursuing our hobbies, seeking entertainment and comfort, going to work, raising a family. But your life was never animated and governed by the great cause of Jesus and his kingdom, even even though those other things are not bad in and of themselves. Even so, if you didn't make the things of God central, you will have wasted your life by not living the truth that you knew. You were made to live your life in service to a great cause. And I'm betting everything right now on the fact that at some point or another, you have felt in your heart that you were made to live and die for something greater than yourself. And Paul begins this prayer by asking that his friends would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, which is to say that they would be filled to the brim with an awareness of their place in the great cause. They'd be filled with such knowledge that it would spur them on to action. Paul does not want them just to grasp this in their minds. His prayer is obviously designed, as we continue on from these words, to lead to a transformed way of living. This is why after praying that God would fill his friends with the knowledge of God's will, Paul continues to pray that the knowledge would have its effect in transforming the lives of his friends. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, he says. He said, I pray that you'd be filled with the knowledge of the will, so, of God's will, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, f- being fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. All true action must spring from knowledge. 
worthy conduct comes from a sound creed. Christian ethics come from sound Christian doctrine. Right doing flows from right thinking. Morality is born from theology. In his prison epistles, the Christian life, Paul characterizes the Christian life by walking. He uses this word walking a lot. He says in in different places, walk in good works. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk circumspectly. Walk in him. Walk in wisdom. Walk worthily of the Lord. And walking implies a few things. Walking implies effort. Being filled with the knowledge of God's will will result in effort. It will also result in progress and a steady pace. Uh, One thing I know about walking is it's far more easy to maintain a walk than a run. (laughs) And so walking implies these things, at least in my own mind. Effort, progress, and a steady pace. And what Paul prays for his friends in, in, uh, in Colossus is this. Uh, he prays that the knowledge of God's will would radically transform them in three different directions. One, he, he talks about them bearing fruit, which is that outwardly there would be a, a transformation in, in their lives. Their lives would be marked by bearing fruit in every good work as he puts it. So there's an outward aspect. There's an aspect of the knowledge of God's will leaking out from us in this bearing fruit in every good work. It's visible to others. He also prays that they would be transformed inwardly. For example, he he prays that they would grow in the knowledge of God. He prays that they would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might, that they might have great endurance and patience. All of that is happening in the inner man. And then lastly, he also prays that they would be spurred on to act in a Godward direction. Outward, inward, Godward. And he prays that by by praying that they would be thankful people, that they would give thanks to God who has um, qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So we see that uh, this is the way it works in Paul's prayer. He prays that God's people would be filled with the knowledge of God's will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that the Holy Spirit would do that work, would not just give them information, but give them desire to go with it, that they would just be filled to overflowing in such a way that it would just sort of burst forth from their life. It would overflow into action. And that action would show up in three different directions. There would be this outward, visibly obvious bearing of fruit in good works. They'd be out there doing things. And there would also be a transformed inner reality, that they would have a hunger for God. They'd grow in the knowledge of Him, that they'd be strengthened with power for endurance and patience in their calling. And lastly, that they would also... Uh, move towards God by being thankful people. They'd be drawn into just uh, times of sweet communion with God. They'd be continuously uh, adopting a posture of thanksgiving towards the God who has so blessedly, richly blessed them. A word here in closing about how being filled with the knowledge of God's will uh, would shape our inner world. 
I find it interesting that Paul prays that God would strengthen his fellow believers with all power, according to his glorious might, for two things, that they might have endurance and patience. Some of your translations might say long-suffering instead of endurance. And I think that's actually a slightly better rendering than my version, which says endurance. But these two things, long-suffering and patience, have you ever thought about the uh, different shade of meaning that exists between these two words? I have to credit W. Graham Scroggie for helping me to see this during this past week. I've been reading a book by him and on the prison prayers of Paul, and uh, he helped me to see uh, some, some things here that I had never thought about before, and I really enjoyed them. I want to share them with you. He points out that the divine power, God's power, which is uh, what Paul is praying for his Colossian friends, is not at our disposal for selfish aggressiveness or for proud exploitation, but rather that the full power of God manifests in us through the joyous embrace of meekness and mercy. Uh, He asks that they would be given the strength of a giant, but not to use it like a giant. (laughs) He prays that they'd be given the strength of a lion so that they can become sheep. God's power gives us also the capacity for joy in long-suffering patience. Uh, That's the other thing, not not just the ability to be long-suffering and patient, um, but to be joyous in the midst of that. Scroggy writes this, Patience refers to our attitude toward trials, but long-suffering to our attitude toward persons. Patience is stout-heartedness under ill fortune, but long-suffering is magnanimity under ill treatment. Patience is the opposite of cowardice or despondency, but long-suffering is the opposite of wrath or revenge. Patience is closely allied to hope, but long-suffering is closely allied to grace and mercy. Patience is fortitude in oneself, but long-suffering is forbearance with others. Patience is well illustrated in Job as hopeful endurance, and long-suffering is perfectly illustrated by Jesus in his bearing the insults of his enemies. Also mixed up in Paul's request that his Christian friends would be strengthened to endure and suffer long was his hope that they would persevere in their calling. It takes divine power working in us to walk in a worthy manner, bear fruit, grow in the knowledge of God, and be filled with a thankful spirit toward God, and that not in fits and starts, but in an enduring way, a patient way a way marked by long-suffering. So let me close now in praying for you, State Road, uh, this special prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that State Road Advent Christian Church would just be filled with the knowledge of your will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Father, I pray this in order that my friends and myself would live lives that are worthy of you and that we would be pleasing to you in every way. 
Father, I pray that my friends and I, that we would bear fruit in every good work and that we would grow continuously in the knowledge of you. Father, I do pray that you would strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might, that we might have great patience and long-suffering, And that we would joyfully give thanks to you who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Father, you have done wonderful things on our behalf. And we are mindful in this time of prayer both who who you are and who we are in relationship to you. Father, you have brought us out of the dominion of darkness. And you've brought us into the kingdom of the Son you love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, we give you thanks for these things. Father, I pray this week as we pray this prayer over one another, that you would fill us with a great sense of your pleasure as we pray these things. And Father, I pray, Lord, that in the praying of it, you would transform our hearts. You would bring us into agreement with your will. And Father, I pray, Lord, that understanding of it would give birth to action, love and action. Father, we talk so much about being a people who love you, who love others, and who love actively. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as we pray these prayers for one another, that we ourselves would begin to resemble the heart behind the prayer. Would you do that work in us, Lord, by the Holy Spirit? We ask you, Lord, that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.